This is an ABC podcast. I looked up to them and I said, I am Mrs. Daisy Bates. She was an enigma. You know, what does she have in that carpet bag? You know, and the parasol and and so on. And the fact that she more or less landed in the desert uh, looking like Mary Poppins. They looked at her as a mum, an evil woman. In the 30s, she was probably the most famous woman in Australia. She was tiny. She would have been lucky to have been five foot. She was married to three men at once. She was not a true anthropologist. She, she was an extraordinary anthropologist, but she wasn't academically trained. I became Kabali, the grandmother. Hi, Mike Ladd with you for the History Listen and part two of our series, The Sands of Uldea. Uldea is an ancient Aboriginal water soak on the edge of the Nullarbor in outback South Australia, near where the Sydney to Perth railway line was joined in 1917. These days it's an unoccupied siding and not much to look at. But below that surface there are multiple historical connections and resonances. In this episode, we look at the life of Aldea's most famous resident, Daisy Bates. When she first went there, she had good intentions. She was fearless in the face of bureaucracy. And the Aboriginal people believed that she was a man reincarnated as a woman. That's how she knew all this men's stuff, which she shouldn't have known. So she was deliberately lying and deceiving the Aboriginal people. They said she really hated the half-caste kids. I can prevent the half-caste from coming by my very presence amongst my own natives. And that is my duty and my work. The kids would hide in the bushes and call out Daisy Bates, you old witch. Daisy published her book, The, The Passing of the Aborigines, and she spoke about cannibalism and how the women ate their babies. She hated Germans, she hated Catholics, although she was Catholic herself. She hated Unionists, she hated Labour, she hated Jews as well. I sort of liked her at first, but when I started reading that correspondence, I decided she was a nasty, bigoted old woman by the 30s. And I remained in Uldia till I came away to write my story. Daisy, Daisy, Daisy. What a conundrum. Daisy Bates arrived at Aldea in September 1919. She appointed herself as protector of the Aboriginal people who were gathering around the railway siding here. Kukata, Pichinjara, Yankanjara, Wurungu, Nalia. They'd been walking across the desert to the permanent waters of the Aldea soak for millennia, but were now also attracted to the train and the new sources of food. Aldea siding, in full view of the trains, with many passers-by, was scarcely the place to accomplish good work for the natives. 
and it was not long before I transferred my camp to a sandy gully a mile north on the track that led to the soak, with a convenient tap in the pipeline for water supply. There I built an enclosing breakwind of mulga bushes and set up the little household that was to be my domain for 16 years. There's not much left of her campsite now, but back in 1988, Tom Gara was part of an archaeological expedition to the site. You can see the outlines of her tent, and the tent posts were there. And she had a row of kerosene cans as windbreak as the sort of low wall of her tent. And they had all rusted away, but you could still see their outlines in the sand. And the camp oven was there, and some of her other things just scattered around. There was an 8 by 10 tent for my living and sleeping, an upturned tank, which my natives and I rolled many miles across the plains where it had lain stranded for years, and which I utilised as library, storing there my manuscripts and my books. A bowshed storehouse that held everything from my daily provender and supplies for the natives to their most sacred totem boards and initiation properties, and a smaller bowshed on the crest of the hill with a ladder leading to its leafy roof that was my observatory. And just up slope were four posts in the ground which obviously had a platform on them. So she apparently had a platform that she'd lie on at night and watch the stars and the, and the base of that was still there. Here in the bright, still evenings, I studied the skies, astronomy being an old love of mine, and compiled my Aboriginal mythologies, many of them as poetic and beautiful as are the starry mythologies of the Greeks. Daisy's backstory before she arrived here at Aldea reads like something out of Vanity Fair. I'll sum it up quickly. She said she was from the Anglo-Irish Protestant aristocracy, but she wasn't. She was the daughter of an alcoholic Catholic bootmaker who abandoned his family. She went to the poor school in Ross Cray and migrated to Queensland in 1883, where she met and married one Harry Breaker Morant. The marriage lasted a few weeks until they both found out that neither of them had any money. Without ever getting around to divorcing Morant, she then married Jack Bates, a drover. He went off droving, she went to Sydney and married the Englishman Ernest Boglehole, who also happened to be married. Double, double bigamy. She had a son, probably by Bates. She left both of them, went back to England and took up journalism. She somehow came into money, went back to Bates and helped him buy a cattle station in the Pilbara. She wrote on assignment for the Times of London and she worked all over Western Australia as a travelling protector of Aborigines. At Beagle Bay near Broome, down in the southwest among the Bibbulmun people, and then lived in a tent at Eucla on the Great Australian Bight, documenting the customs and language of the Rooning. In 1914, she left Eucla in a camel buggy and became the first white woman to cross the Nullarbor. 
She was on her way to the ANZUS conference in Sydney to give an anthropological paper. She spent some time in Adelaide and other places, then came to Udia on this very train line. In 1919, she heard these stories about the Aboriginal women being prostituted and people dying of disease, etc. along the line, and she was prompted to go out there to see what she could do. She tried to help the Aboriginal people there to survive. I found conditions difficult. Some hundreds of derelict natives had established their camps at the sidings, and travelled up and down the line, begging from the train at every stopping place, a responsibility and a menace in that many of them were already ravaged by disease. There was no control of them. The few filthy rags they wore had been thrown to them in charity and decency. A policeman stationed at Takula and another at Kalgoorlie dispensed rations. But Takula and Kalgoorlie are nearly a thousand miles apart. She provided food and clothing and medical treatment for them as far as she could. She, she sold her properties in Western Australia to support her work there. And she solicited gifts or donations from her wealthy friends and things in Adelaide and Perth to help her obtain materials for the Aboriginal people. She wrote hundreds of newspaper articles and that was one of her main means of making money, I guess, by the late 20s and early 30s. I depended wholly upon the earnings of my pen, contributing to Australian and home newspapers my scientific gleanings of general interest, the legends that had occupied years in the collection, and the human stories of the curious people to whom I have devoted my life. The forces keeping her in the desert and away from civilization were much stronger than anything drawing her to the cities. So Odea, in a way, was perfect for her. I mean, she didn't clearly didn't mind the heat. She didn't mind the adversity of more or less living in a tent on not much at all. The train would come every few days. And um, that was her link to the world. She could put her manuscript on there and send it off. Curator and historian Philip Jones. She was managing the image of Aboriginal people in this frontier situation. She had control over that in ways that no one else had. So she could tell a story that no one else could tell. My first task as the group stepped over the threshold of civilization, was to set them at ease and clothe them, learn their names and their waters, explain the white man's laws, and tell them of the resources and the dangers of this new age they had stumbled into. For her, clothing the natives was the first step in civilization. There was something about that act that she herself was paying such attention to, uh, her fastidious method of dressing herself, and her own appearance was completely anachronistic. Throughout my life, I have adhered to the simple but exact dictates of fashion as I left it, when Victoria was queen. A neat white blouse, 
stiff collar and ribbon tie, a dark skirt and coat, stout and serviceable, trim shoes and neat black stockings, a sailor hat and a fly veil, and, for my excursions to the camps, always a dust coat and a sunshade. Not until I was in meticulous order would I emerge from my tent, dressed for the day. The South Australian Museum holds an amazing collection of Daisy's original hats, heavily darned gloves and dusty old dresses. Conservator Kristen Phillips. Clothes are great because really, you know, you can see photos of someone, but it's not until you actually look at their clothes you get a real sense of the scale of the person. There's so much enmeshed with the person. There'll be sweat stains, there'll be stains from what you've been doing, there'll be wear marks. They really tell about the person that wore them. And I think that's very much the case with the Daisy Bates one. Again, packed beautifully into an acid-free box with acid-free tissue. So we'll just take some off and you can start to see these garments that she wore were really good quality, well-tailored, really hard to clean. And you can see here that on the hemline of the skirt we've got lots of kind of mud and stains because this skirt wouldn't have been washed very much. She probably washed her petticoat, but the top layers were not washed much at all. And that was a very Victorian notion. And you can start to see it's a full length skirt. It would have gone right to her ankles. And again, she was wearing these up into the 40s. And in the 40s, nobody was wearing a long dress in town. She really would have looked strange. And you can also see that she was tiny. I mean, look at the waist on it. It's just so little. Little tiny waist, it's about the size of one of my thighs. It's very, very narrow. And also the other thing you can see is that, although it was good quality when it's made, we're starting to see that it was really well worn. She's done some dodgy repairs at the waistband, things are wearing out, she's cobbled bits and pieces together. And I sort of can't help but imagine there might be some old deer sand Possibly, somewhere yes, in those, yes, that's right. And that's why leaves. also when we look after items like this, we don't wash them. We've got Daisy Bates' DNA. We've also got who knows what else in there. I did my utmost to arrest the contamination of civilization. No more half-caste children were born in Uldir from 1920 onward until the temporary cessation of my work there in 1934. Nor was any half-caste ever begotten in any of my camps. I had my own way of dealing with the problem. By quiet persuasion, preventing the black girls from haunting the white men's huts, and by equally quiet persuasion, from a different angle, deterring the white men from association with them. We know plenty about what Daisy thought of Aboriginal people, but what did they think of her? Jeremy LaBoyce is chairperson of the Maralinga Juritra Council and a custodian of the Udia Soak. My people come from Maralinga land and they knew the place Udia. But at the time they were staying at Uldia was when uh, Daisy Bates was there at, as well, giving out rations to the people and it was easy food for them. Plus there was good water there. A lot of the full blood Aboriginals, she had good connection with uh, with my people. 
um, but but the light-skinned ones didn't have a really good relationship with her. They looked at her as a mum, an evil woman, and um, but with the rest of them, they looked at her as a as a cubbly that done well for them. Cubbly grandmother. Mate. Cubbly grandmother. Yunkanjara poet Ali Cobby Eckerman's grandmother lived at Odea and gave birth to Ali's mother there. You know, in the early years of reconnecting with family, I got the privilege to sit down with old people who had first-hand experience of encountering Daisy Bates. Their stories weren't so positive. They said she really hated the half-caste kids and my grandmother had to tuck food into her clothing to sneak the food off to feed her children. She would give lollies to the dark kids and not to the lighter skinned kids. I think they saw her as a very strange person, which she would have been out there when people were living traditional lives. She must have really stood out as the as the odd one. And a couple of them said they used to tease her a little bit because her tent was set further away from where the main living areas were. And when she would walk up the track to her tent, the kids would hide in the bushes and call out, Daisy Bates, you old witch. And she would turn around and her... English attire and try and find them but they were they were the ones that knew how to hide and they were the ones that didn't get taken away. Very early one morning I was awakened by the insistent clicking of boomerangs outside my tent. I went out to find a long file of more than 50 men forming a half circle. All carried spears, and all were naked except for their decorations. Crazy stripes of red ochre and white pipe clay, crests of cockatoo feathers, hair belts and tassels reddened with blood, and waist belts with a tuft of emu feather behind. In my sober Edwardian coat and skirt, a sailor hat with fly veil and neat high-heeled shoes, I took up my position in the centre, we must have made a quaint assembly indeed. They like her, they know that she fed them, but she was a bit wonky, that's the word they used. I don't think they really knew why she was there or what she was doing, but they were aware that she was looking after them, and that, that I mean, the men of them would have died if it hadn't been for her medical help and food, etc. But I don't think they really knew why she was there. The default position is that the indigenous people at Ordea must have regarded her as a crazy woman. I really dispute that. I think, in fact, the opposite, that she was exhibiting to them a level of interest in their culture which she quoted to respect. Her main fixation, I think, was to build up knowledge of how the society worked and how the mythology worked for these people. And the level of her knowledge, when you consider that Aboriginal um, status is founded entirely on levels of knowledge, 
she had as much knowledge by the time she got into her second decade at Odia that nobody else had. Certainly no white person had. So I think if you look at it from that broader issue of reciprocity, I mean, they didn't know she was unusual and they're receiving something. She's there, she's asking them questions. She's familiar with what the older people have told her and the older people die and she's now the repository of that information. Which language was she working in? At Odia, it was Pichinjari. She recorded vocabularies in Wirungu and Mirning, and, and uh, we're really indebted to her for that. All things being equal, she would have loved to have been cocooned in silence among the people well away from European civilization, where the people could go out hunting each day and come back in the evening and share their food with her and, and their stories, and it would be totally idyllic. But that wasn't what she had. Whatever we think of her now, she was certainly brave and resourceful. She lived independently of church and state, and the authorities didn't like that. At Aldea, over a hundred people were being detained for the simple reason, it appeared, of serving the ambitious aims of Mrs Daisy Bates, who was camped half a mile from the settlement. Dr Bazado, 1920. She continued alone out here in her tent, gathering stories, language, sacred and secular objects, and writing endless letters to city anthropologists and articles for the newspapers, all the while trying to keep the sand out of her typewriter. One must love solitude for its own sake, to taste in its fullness the perfect happiness that these beautiful open spaces give. Wind and sunlight and wide, clear spaces. Dawn and evening and bright, clear stars and desert places. But Daisy did have some guests at Aldea. In 1926, the redoubtable Olive Pink arrived. An artist, botanist and anthropologist, Olive was a tireless independent campaigner for Aboriginal rights. She had been quite an agitator. And she went along to the Science Society that was held in Sydney, what became ANZAS. And Daisy Bates was there and they met and got on well. Later in the year, they agreed that Olive Pink would take the train from Sydney, head for Perth, and drop her off at Uldia at Mrs Bates's camp. That's Julie Marcus, Olive Pink's biographer. One of the reasons for going to Uldia had been because she understood it as being on the edge of the Nullarbor Plain. And she understood the Nullarbor Plain as being flat and absolute nothingness and she wanted to go and paint it 
and she found it was actually scrubby and not quite empty at all. And she did try to paint it, but I always liked the idea of going somewhere to paint the nothingness. <laughs> I think it was extraordinary. But she met Aboriginal people for the first time and with Daisy Bates, she found that she learned how to respond and how to meet and talk and socialise with Aboriginal people who were living very different kinds of lives to hers. And she really liked it. And she was a, a very curious child from the start. So she gathered up words and she gathered insects and she gathered plants and she painted and she watched the little girls dancing for her and showing her their games and she spoke to the men and she found them the most entrancing people to actually deal with. The visit to Aldea was a key moment in Olive Pink's life. She stayed in Daisy's store tent and the two women cooked for each other on the campfire and talked long into the night about Aboriginal rituals, language and kinship systems. She learned from Daisy Bates ways of working with Aboriginal people and she learned how to live in the bush. Like Daisy, Olive Pink hated bureaucracy and frequently clashed with the authorities. And she thought that they weren't working for Aboriginal people, they were working for themselves. Government policies that she thought were intended to get rid of Aboriginal people altogether. Also like Daisy, Olive went on to live in a tent among the Aborigines, in her case, further north with the Walpuri. She battled the draconian Northern Territory system to get Aboriginal people their own land, free of missions and in full control of their own rights. Olive Pink thought they should be able to live as they had always lived on those lands and that they should choose when and how to interact with the European people and governments. While Daisy Bates was an influence on Olive Pink, Olive and Daisy later fell out after Daisy published sensationalist claims about Aboriginal cannibalism. Olive Pink ended her days in Alice Springs, where she and John Jamper Jimper created the wonderful Arid Land Botanical Garden that today bears her name. She got old, she got creaky. She was living in a tin shed. She had almost nothing. But the activism didn't stop. You can see the last letters and the hands shaking. And she never really gave up. In 1932, the peripatetic journalist Ernestine Hill turned up at Aldea and spent five days at Daisy's camp. My first quest in the centre was Daisy Bates, a name that will certainly be written in Australia's history. Living unafraid in the great loneliness, chanting in those corroborees that it is death for a woman to see, she had become a legend to her own kind, long lost, the woman who lives with the blacks. A daughter of the old sporting gentry of Ireland, a rider to hounds and a fluent linguist, 
Here was a woman who could tell time by the passing of the sun, followed tracks like a native, and cooked her food in the ashes. Achieving the impossible for the scientific work that is her life's mission, she learned to think black. Ernestine Hill, The Great Australian Loneliness. Ernestine tended to romanticise and dramatise her subjects. She published a series of newspaper articles with and about Daisy called My Natives and I, and later worked as Daisy's ghostwriter on her memoir, The Passing of the Aborigines. The memoir is an infuriating mix of valuable anthropology, false assertions and Bates's big noting. Was I not their ancestral grandmother? Spirit rather than woman? As the title suggests, it was also way, way too quick to pronounce the extinction of Aboriginal culture. Of the songs that rang to the stars in the far-off time there is no echo. The black man survived the coming of the white for little more than one lifetime. But the worst aspect of the passing of the Aborigines was Daisy's obsessive overemphasis of cannibalism. Every one of these central natives was a cannibal. Human meat had always been their favourite food, and there were killing vendettas from time immemorial. Her claims of cannibalism seemed to have been mostly unfounded, but they had a lasting impact on Australian society, those claims, even in the sense that a few years ago Pauline Hanson used Daisy Bates' claims that Aboriginal people ate their own babies as a reason why we shouldn't be giving them extra benefits and things. Victims were shared according to the law. The older men ate the soft and virile parts and the brain. Swift runners were given the thighs. Hands, arms or shoulders went to the best spear throwers and so on. I think that the Aborigines were either just sort of pulling her leg or that she misunderstood something they were saying. There certainly is evidence that Aboriginal people sometimes ate parts of a relative or even an enemy to get that person's strength themselves. And there certainly is evidence that mothers would sometimes kill a baby if she already had one in times of drought or something. And it just seems that she totally misunderstood some of that and took it as a much more universal thing where people were eating people just for food. And there's no evidence of that either from Aldea or from any other part of Australia that that was happening. Nyan Nawera gave birth to a child a mile west of my camp, where she killed and ate the baby, sharing the food with the little daughter. Later, we came upon the broken skull and one or two charred bones, which I later sent to the Adelaide Museum. I've done some research into the bones that she supposedly sent to the South Australian Museum, the bones of, of a cannibalised baby, which were found to be those of a feral cat. By, by the museum staff, and they told her that, and she didn't send any more in after that. And this is where there's room for, for cynicism about her, almost double standard, while at the one time she's revering and preserving Aboriginal culture in mythological texts, analyses of kinship and so on. And then on the other side, you have this fixation with cannibalism, and do you think that it was also good for her journalism? Was there a bit of cynicism there in the sense that these are the kind of stories that sold mm. newspapers? 
I, I mean, I have to say yes, I, I think so. Daisy Bates battled on in the sands of Aldea. Year after year, little or no rain fell upon the parched earth. The mighty plain was but a shadow of the pale, empty skies. Native foods dwindled and vanished, fruit and root and berry. All the rain songs were in vain. Sandstorms raged for hours at a time, and the world was darkened. When the heaviest gusts threatened to rob me of house and home, I clung frantically to the ridgepole of my tent, pitting my slender weight against the strength of the elements, and when they abated, crept in exhausted to find my stretcher, my table, and everything else within covered in nearly a foot of sand. I built my breakwind up to 12 feet high in order to protect my tent in these ruinous winds and sweeping sands, but it was of little avail. Sometimes Aboriginal hunters bought her rabbits or other game, but her basic diet was poor. A potato in the ashes, now and again a spoonful of rice that nine times out of ten was burned in my absence or absent-mindedness, occasionally the treat of a boiled egg, and always tea, my panacea for all ills, were the full extent of my culinary craft. Dingoes howled on the sandhills all night through, and sometimes came into the siding and killed the fettlers' goats and fowls. The natives told me that before the days of the white man, they had been known to slink into the breakwind shelters at Uldilgapi and attack the babies. When blood-curdling howls made night hideous, a shot from my revolver restored the silence and peace of the starlight. Yep, Daisy was armed at Aldea apparently with a 44 revolver. By 1934, Daisy's health was failing. My eyes were in a serious condition. I suffered from headaches and hopelessness and could not sleep. By the end of that time, she was old and frail and almost going blind and probably broke as well. Sand blindness was making her life very difficult at the soak. I dared not venture beyond the confines of my breakwind, but I could thread the well-known tracks within it without injury and grope my way to the pipeline for water. Also, in 1933, a rival had set up at Aldea, the United Aborigines Mission. The first missionary was Annie Locke, who was another indefatigable outback woman, and she and Daisy clashed quite severely. It seems there was only room for one great white queen of the Never Never. And in 1934, Daisy packed her bags and left Aldea on the eastbound train for Adelaide. Crooning and crying, they gathered round me on the slope of the sand hill. A few strangers were among them, new arrivals from the desert, who had come to this Kabali of whom they had heard so much to say hail and farewell. We made a queer procession to the siding, 
walking slowly and in single file, as we had so often walked to the sacred ceremonies. Because I had the sacred totem boards in my possession, the women dared not approach, but stood away on the north side of the line. The train came in. My shabby old holdall that had been my wardrobe since 1909 and still carried my personal possessions for old sake's sake was hoisted aboard. The last I saw was the soft, strained farewell in my native's eyes. I did what I set out to do, to make their passing easier and to keep the dreaded half-caste menace from our great continent. In Adelaide, she walked every day to her office at the Advertiser newspaper. Still dressed in her Mary Poppins outfit, she was a peer into prams, a chider of children wagging school, a strange old busybody on the city streets. My return to civilization was tinctured with a deep sadness. Gone were the Australia and the Australians I had known. In my brief and hurried glimpse of the now mature and graceful cities of Adelaide, Melbourne and Sydney, quite alone and in my old world garb, I felt a stranger and an anachronism. The city was just too intimidating for her and so she went up to the river and uh, once again I think she was in a tent. In her tent at Piap on the Murray River, Daisy continued to bash out her articles on her typewriter. The Passing of the Aborigines was published in London in 1938. In 1941, Daisy returned to the desert, living at Winbring Railway Siding, east of Ordea, but bad health forced her back to Adelaide. In the last years of her life, she tried to reconnect with her son Arnold, whom she'd virtually abandoned all those years ago. But sadly, he no longer wanted anything to do with her. When she died in a prospect nursing home, she had only £66 in the bank. Between the 1930s and the 1950s, she was one of the most famous women in Australia. Publicly lauded and her writings studied on the school syllabus. But by the 70s, her false claims about cannibalism and her prejudice against the people she labelled as half-castes meant her reputation was in heavy decline. And here she is, slightly neglected tombstone, some of the lettering is a bit hard to read now. Kabali, to the memory of Daisy M. Bates, CBE, died 19th of April 1951, aged 91 years. Erected by the Commonwealth Government as a tribute to her lifelong work in the interests of the Australian Aboriginals. Modest little white marble 
slab here in the main North Road Cemetery. Love dreaming. When you went back to the waterhole and sat under the mulberry tree at the all deer soakage, did you see Daisy Bates dressed in English attire, standing on the white sand dunes? When you went back to the waterhole and scooped the precious water from the sandy sanctuary, did you hear the warriors dancing in the moonlight? Snake and emu making love. When you went back to the waterhole, do the white sand dunes make love to the moonlight? Does the mulberry tree scoop the precious water? Does Daisy hear the warriors coming back, coming back? And the final word there goes to poet Ali Cobby Eckerman. That was part two of The Sands of Aldea. The readings were by Lizzie Falkland and Mark Saturno. The sound engineer was Tom Henry, composer Jakob Gaurashinsky, and production was by me, Mike Ladd. I hope you can join me for the next episode, which focuses on the British nuclear bomb tests and their aftermath. Or just visit the History Listen website to download your own copy of the whole series. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.